I, it's a little like Wait it's a, a little clunky right here. Um, Rolling, take one. Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And on this week's show, we're talking about Kodak Ektachrome and a lot about Kodak Ektachrome. That's the history of the film and the various processes used to develop it. We'll also give you some advice on shooting and developing expired film. We've got the answering machine question and some more trivia. And we'll give a call to Janet, the woman who built her own wet plate camera. But first, Vanya... How you doing? Well, we're actually recording a little bit earlier than usual because I'm heading out. Yes. I've actually been doing some trip planning for something a little bit later down the road and working a little bit more than usual, which is good, but just not uh, photographing as much as I would like to. But I think I have some opportunities coming up, so I'm excited about that. I have been surfing a little bit more, so that's been very nice. Clouds are starting to thin a little bit. The water is still pretty warm. I wore a bathing suit the other day and it was like sunny and I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) it's like still so hot. It's very, very hot. I think that once the water cools down a little bit, the uh, crowds will thin out a little bit more. So I'm very excited. How about you? How have you been? I've been just fine, really. It hasn't been that long since we recorded. We're not doing it quite back to back, but it's a lot less time. So I have a lot less time to do, well, nothing. So I'm planning maybe a few day trips and a few weekend trips before the snow covers the passes and I can't get the hell out of Seattle. So I shot in the city last winter and I honestly wasn't really thrilled with either the shooting or the results. It was kind of nice to get out, but you know, with COVID happening in the year since then, I've gotten out a lot. There's been a lot of walking around the neighborhood. So shooting now just seems like, why would I do that? Why would I bother? But before the snow hits, I would like to blow through a few dozen rolls and maybe 30 or 40 sheets. So nothing really, but I am planning. Okay, I will say something really quick. You give yourself not enough credit. He, Eric does a ton with the podcast and with the (laughs) Patreon and writing and editing my writing. So he hasn't actually been doing nothing, (laughs) but maybe just like, as far as taking pictures, I would say maybe not so much. I've taken uh, one roll, actually, and that was to test out a new camera. So and that was it. I haven't really done all that much as far as photography goes. (laughs) I've been mostly just playing records and watching movies. It sounds amazing, though. (laughs) It's not bad. (laughs) Okay, let's do our trivia question. I think this is what we're doing now, you guys. We're doing trivia every (laughs) episode. So what's the trivia question? So the trivia question this time around has to do with ectochrome. And so the question is, in the spring of 1946, Kodak wanted to test the limits of their new emulsion, known as ectochrome. They did this by sending on a northern expedition. Where did they send it? And who was the photographer? The answer will come later in the show. Each episode, we ask you, the listener, to leave us a voice message answering whatever the hell question we come up with. This episode, the question is... Apart from photography, does other analog media play a role in your life? Ooh. Yeah, we've gotten maybe eight, I guess, messages. And that's actually pretty good. Yes. So let's uh, push the button, huh? All right, let's do it. Hello. No one is available to take your call. 
Please leave a message after the tone. Hi, this is Ben with uh, Forgotten by Time Photo. Um, to answer the question quickly, uh, I would say yes, it, it does play a major part of my life. I mean, everything from from music, I have a reel-to-reel and an 8-track and a turntable to, to books on paper, I guess you can call that analog. I even have a rotary phone in my house, believe it or not, and still have a video projector that, that plays old uh, 8mm films. I kind of love old things, and I uh, attest this to my childhood. Uh, growing up in the 80s, it was a very analog childhood, and in the 90s, being a teenager, having to kind of learn digital and bridge between the two, so I firmly have a uh, soft spot for really old things. I, I do remember, and this isn't my story, Brandy, a friend of the show, Brandy, uh, her dad used to make her help him make mixtapes on reel-to-reel, so she'd have to splice it with a razor. Amazing. <laughs> I'm sure she doesn't think so, but that's awesome. (laughs) No, she doesn't think so. Hi, Eric and Vanya. This is Gary from Glasgow, Scotland. You can get me at GQ Glasgow on Instagram, but it's the same on Twitter, and I use that a lot more, to be honest. Analog definitely plays more of a role in my life. I... I'll listen to music on CDs and MP3s, but I find I definitely pay more attention to them when I play a record. I think it's just that ritual and the act of choosing a record demands more attention. I'd like to use my Kindle, but when it comes to photography books in particular, I don't really look at photos on Instagram. I'm that one that really just shares and does nothing else. I'll buy photo books every month. I get a lot more value there. And even reading fiction, I prefer novels over Kindle. Although sometimes Kindle wins for convenience. Now, two things. First. Thing one. Thing one is, yes, records in the ritual and all that. I think I'll be talking a little bit about that. So I'm going to go to number two, thing two, which is photo books, which is something I honestly didn't really consider with this question. It is. Right? Like, totally. Yeah, but I, did, I was thinking like other, like other media or whatever. But yeah, I, I've been, I think this is true for most of us that most of the photos that we look at are digital. You know, it's Instagram or for the, the few of us that are on Flickr, it's that or just yeah. you know, random whatever. But buying photo books, I wouldn't say necessarily instead of, you know, going on, on Instagram, etc. But maybe making it more of a habit to buy photo books. Yeah, I mean, we definitely push that with the zines. Obviously, everybody should make a zine. Uh, Holding your work in your hand and seeing in front of you is definitely a different experience than just staring at it on a screen. I love the tangibility of vinyl and the feeling that those physical representations of the sound waves on the disc provide a real sense of connection to the moment the music was made. And that, along with the fact that I have to be more selective in what I own and more engaged in what I play. Those are points of commonality between vinyl and film for me as well. But there are differences too, because with vinyl, I started off with a bunch of shitty thrift store records and thought they were kind of cute, but eventually realized I wanted to invest in stuff that played well and was clean. And with film for me, it was just the opposite. And what I realized I really loved was the more degraded stuff and the sense of janky serendipity that comes with it because expired film can have a really unique character, and damaged, borderline, unplayable records just kind of suck. Oh, I like this. I had the same thing. I mean, most of my earliest records were given to me. Like, I have this... (laughs) It's a Barry Manilow record, and when <laughs> when Pam would come stay over, I would play it really early in the morning and turn it up really high and then close the door and leave the room. <laughs> so mean. <It's> terrible. 
<laughs> but I still have it. It's just, and it's awful. I'm sure it's super scratch. I haven't seen it. I haven't like cleaned it or anything, but huh, like it. Yeah. Uh, because I was kind of raised with vinyl. I never mm. went through that discovering vinyl period. Mm-hmm. And so I think that probably happens to a lot of people where it's like, oh my God, vinyl. And so you go to a thrift store and you buy all these like, all these shitty records mm-hmm. and they're kind of cool because records are kind of cool. And then you realize like, oh, I could actually enjoy this. Yeah. Not just put a Barry Manilow record on to wake my friend up. <laughs> you can, you know, enjoy the experience of vinyl and not just the funny experience of vinyl. Yes. So one thing, my my aunt had a record player all through forever. And I remember going through her albums and mm. playing a bunch with my sister. Last year, she gave me her collection. That's so rad. Because she was just like, I'm not like gonna play these anymore so it's like a bunch of like madonna (laughs) oh guys this stuff it's great but it's like all these records that i as a kid i was putting on and i just think that's so amazing i'm actually having a hard time like getting rid of them a lot of like hispanic and latin bands for sure hi y'all yeah uh love some vinyl if it's mixed for vinyl there seems like from late 90s early aughts There's just a whole lot of music that just wasn't made to be on vinyl. Also obsessing over uh, analog tape. I've been listening to a lot of Andy Warhol interviews, and I'm seriously thinking about recording every conversation. Take care. I have a very interesting story here. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So my grandparents were living in Chile uh, in Santiago when I was a kid, and they would send tapes of them talking. And it would be like my grandmother and my grandfather, like, and basically like a phone conversation, but just like talking about what's been happening and how things are going. And they would have like friends over and they would record and they would be talking to us. And then they would ship them and send it to us and my mom would play them. So I have, we have like tapes and tapes of like conversations. So they kind of had their own podcast. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) Oh my gosh, my grandfather would be amazing. Does a manual transmission vehicle and a broken record player count? Asking for a friend. Aside from those two items, uh, pretty much everything I usually use is digital, actually. Including the, ironically, the camera that I digitize my photos with. Pretty much film, and occasionally when I have a chance to fix that damn record player, then the record player for music for analog. Uh, Otherwise, that's pretty much it. Digital is kind of an avalanche. You know, it kind of came... You know, it started with like CDs and stuff, but when streaming and well, I guess when MP3s really hit, it just it just wiped out everything. Yeah, you know, and so you do have all of these old record players that probably don't work anymore, and there's a lot of that around. But you know, there's still a lot of good record players being made now. So not that you shouldn't fix the old stuff, but if you're not gonna, maybe just pick up a new one. <laughs> yeah, or pick up you know a restored vintage even. Hey guys, Sam here at Panku Film on Instagram. Analog media in general definitely plays a pretty big role in my life. I guess it has a lot to do with my granddad and my dad and their passion for keeping quote-unquote outdated tech alive. Yeah, I buy a lot of vinyl from punk gigs. I still have cassette tapes, including the BBC's Lord of the Rings radio play. And I'm okay with digital audiobooks, but I'm definitely not buying a Kindle anytime soon. Well, I guess the... (laughs) I guess the Lord of the Rings tapes and buying records at punk shows really kind of speaks to me. I don't know about the Lord of the Rings, but you can still, well, I mean, when we could go to gigs, you can like get records and things like that. That's really the only time I would get them. Yeah, that was the cool thing with the punk scene is that the, 
vinyl never stopped being a thing. Yeah. CDs came in, but vinyl was always the main format. And yeah. that's just really cool. You know, even through like the, the, the 90s and the aughts, I guess, I could go to any, any punk show and buy records. And I never stopped buying records. And that was kind of the cool thing about, that was kind of the cool thing about the punk scene. Hello, podcast. Um, the analog media in my life, besides photography, is uh, records. I got a record player for my 12th birthday, and I've been steadily collecting since then. Uh, I think the last record I bought was uh, Bad Habits by The Monks, and the record that I hope to get very soon is Gaucho by Steely Dan, or Can't Buy a Thrill by Steely Dan. Pre pretty much just whatever Steely Dan I can get my hands on. Thank you. Love the podcast. Did you ever go through a Steely Dan phase? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's a special kind of woman that does. And I, I've only known women who were into Steely Dan, but they're like really into Steely Dan. I'm sure Steely Dan mostly has male fans because they're kind of that prog rock thing. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. It's something It's something about them. I, I like them. I, like, I haven't listened to a whole lot, but I, I do. They're, they're like a 1975 album. Um, I've got the name of it. it. Had like a bug on the cover. Really solid album. Really, really good. Throw back the Oh, and also the monks' bad habits was that the monks from like well, they were servicemen in the '60s in Germany, and they got together and had a band because they kind of hated being in the army, and they recorded some. They, they're, it's not great music, I guess, but it's fun. Okay. It's really fun music. Probably something you should pick up. Hi, guys. Jason Beaner here. That's just Jason Beaner on Instagram. Um, yeah, I'm a all analog pretty much all the time. Uh, I shoot all film and wet plate. Um, collect records. I've got a couple reel-to-reel -reel tape players. And I just picked up a 16-millimeter Bullex motion picture camera that I'm playing with now. So, yeah, keep it analog. <laughs> <laughs> they are. <laughs> They're beautiful machines. Uh, yeah, another reel-to-reel. -reel. Yeah, interesting. You think it's like, but I wonder if they're just like a little bit older than me. Maybe. Because reel-to-reel kind of died out before I got into the knowledge that music existed, I guess. And I'm wondering if maybe they're they're just a little bit older than me and hit the reel-to-reel -reel thing in their childhood. Because I didn't have any exposure to that at all. I definitely feel that most um, film photographers veer towards older analog things i would say this question was uh, i think one person kind of answered a, a sort of no it was august sort of no but kind of yes and so i'm wondering if people who just are flat out no just didn't answer hmm. we didn't get any no's no it's odd sometimes we do get a few people just like no i don't do this <laughs> and that's okay i feel like the people that shoot film and will stick with film and it's not just like oh it's like super popular right now are the people that listen to records and drive manual transmission cars and <laughs> <laughs> okay, we heard from our lovely listeners. Now it's our turn to answer. So, Eric, let's have you go first. Oh, this is weird. I don't usually go first. Okay. <laughs> so, while film photography was really an early love for me, it was absolutely predated by my record collection. And anybody who follows me on Instagram, knows that I like my record collection quite a bit. Uh, by the time I was three, I was able to dig out a record from my parents' collection, take it out of the sleeve, take it over to the turntable, put the needle on the record, and and play. I could flip the records by age of three. I'm not saying I was like super graceful at it, but I could do it. <laughs> and by the age of nine, I was using my lawn mowing money 
exclusively to buy records, and mostly it was Duran Duran 12-inch singles. <laughs> of which I still have all of them. I've never gotten rid of one, so I still have all of my Duran Duran singles. Uh, I, I know, I'm bragging again. <laughs> So now I've got a collection that's to someone who's like a big vinyl collector. It's not a big collection, but to someone who's not a big vinyl collector, it's a big collection. I'm kind of on the, the collection is about 2000 titles, a little shy of that. (laughs) And that's after getting rid of several hundred over the years. So I'm not a collector like searching for like rare pressings or limited runs. I I really just like the music. I want it to sound good, you know? So if I get like a a janky pressing from Russia or something, I will replace it with something that sounds better. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I just want the music. I did the CD and the MP3 thing, and I'll still listen to streaming music and MP3s as well. I just don't feel like I own the music until I have it on vinyl. You know, if I've got like an album or something on MP3 or I have access to it on Spotify, which I guess is the same thing now, I just don't feel that it's mine. And I'm definitely not one of those like woo woo auto audiophiles who buys $10,000 cables and fools himself into thinking that vinyl somehow sounds better. It doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't sound better than digital. I just like the experience and the ritual of physically holding that record in my hand. How about you? (laughs) Basically the same thing. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I would say it definitely plays a role in my life, mostly stemming from my stubbornness and... (laughs) other brattiness <laughs> things about me. Um, okay. I hated the switch over to MP3 uh, with a passion. I just really did feel like holding an album in your hands was like such a wonderful thing for me growing up. And I know like I get it. You can go online and you can watch videos and you can see interviews and things. You know, it's not like you don't have access to those things, but it. I like the experience of sitting down and like opening a record. And like, I remember looking at the pictures and like opening, you know, see if they have like all the lyrics and following along i like that that was wonderful that's one thing you don't get with like spotify or even mp3s you generally don't get any of that i miss that and so i tried to keep that alive in my house like marley's super into uh fleetwood mac and i have those (laughs) records and i have a picture of her like sitting on the couch like looking at all the pictures and like reading the lyrics and i'm like oh my god like this is the best this was years ago too she was really young it was cute (laughs) <laughs> I also stubbornly keep my 1982 Volvo station wagon. By the way, <laughs> it has a glorious tape deck. It's stock, of course. Uh, so it actually goes in kind of like wide instead of okay. like, you know how like the tapes go in usually like in skinny side, like or the... Oh my God. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> I want to see this. Okay. I didn't know that the that the 82 tape decks were like that. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> awesome. I can't get rid of it. Someone was like, why don't you just like, you know, put a new like interface in there? I was like, are you kidding me, dude? It says Volvo. This is amazing. Like, I'm not getting rid of this. No, don't. It has a manual transmission. And I consider <laughs> it my personal duty to teach my kids manual transmission first. People that drive manual transmissions are better drivers. Just period. That's okay. it. We just right. know how to drive. We don't ride our brakes. We're just awesome. So congratulations. Okay. If you know how to drive a manual transmission. Uh, my coffee person. maker is from the early 1980s and I'll never replace it. I just really like old things. I think a lot of the reason because they don't break. They're just made to last. So now I sound like a boomer. <sighs> Back in my day. <laughs> So 
So since starting the podcast, Eric and I both have received tons of questions about expired film. So since we've been getting so many questions, we thought maybe we should talk a little bit about expired film. We are going to talk about shooting and developing expired film. Yes. And most of the questions I get are about developing. But we're going to talk about shooting first because you got to shoot first. (laughs) (laughs) Got to start somewhere. So, I mean, you, we've both shot a lot of expired film. Yes. So, I mean, we, we were both pretty, uh, I guess, knowledgeable as far as that goes. Uh, I would say for the most part, you've shot much more expired film than I have. I have shot a lot of expired film. The first thing that I do when buying expired film or just trying to use expired film that I haven't tested is I'm just convinced it's not going to work. Yeah, just be prepared. Take it, you're just shooting blanks. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> And one a really important thing is if you're testing like a new developer or testing a new camera is don't test it with expired film. That's a bad idea. Are you okay over there? Was it the shooting blanks <laughs> thing that's <laughs> Sometimes I'll throw these phrases in. I know I turn into like a sixth grader like <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely have had this problem. Um, actually, I shot some slide film. It was expired. I think it was 1996, maybe. Oh, God. Okay. And it was blank. Is this the stuff that you just sent to me and you made a bow out of it? Yeah. For a little present? Yeah. Okay. So, so there are different things that you can do when things, they, they don't come out. That's true. If, if your film doesn't work for you, there are craft projects you can do with it, which <laughs> may be better anyway. I don't know what your photos you look like. You can make slap bracelets, possibly. <laughs> If it's 120, maybe you can just like cut like a little space for your nose and make some wraparound glasses. <laughs> okay, Grandma. So yeah. film goes bad for like a number of reasons. Uh, there's gonna be it could be moisture, it could be cosmic rays, literally it could, like radiation and stuff from the sun. So you do have to kind of watch how you shoot it and and like how it's been stored. How it's been stored is super important. So cold stored is is really good. So if you get something out of the fridge, that's a, a really good place to find you know uh, expired film good place to keep expired film frozen is always best because that almost stops the mm-hmm. aging process almost and if you're buying from ebay or actually you know if you're buying from anywhere everybody will always tell you oh it's been in the fridge since i got it and, but you don't really know how long they've had it they probably got it out of a basement somewhere so just expect that it's bad but if you get multiple rolls then you have some options for shooting it trial and error so you do you know, yes. if you get several rolls of something, then, I mean, it is definitely always a gamble, but it's also worth a shot. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> and while all film... Sorry. And while all film degrades at the same rate, I have noticed that film in, in 120 often turns out to be a little bit better than its counterpart in 35 millimeter if, if, if everything else is the same. Because I feel that people take more care of 120 for some reason. I don't know if maybe more professional shot with it, but it was almost always cold stored. So you're definitely going to have more luck with 120 than 35 and definitely more luck with 4x5 and other sheets than you would other formats. Let's start with black and white. I think each black and white color and slide film, they all have, they all degrade at different rates. And I think they need to be handled separately. So a lot of people do the one stop per decade rule and just kind of have that cover all of expired film. But that's, it's not, it's an okay place to start, but it's not quite what I do. Okay, for starters, high speed film. So anything 400 and above 
will definitely age more quickly than low-speed films, 100 or 50 or 32 or whatever. That's something to definitely pay attention to if you buy like 400 or say if you buy 3600 ISO film, you're not going to get 3600 out of it, especially if it's really old. So much older film, stuff like Verichrome, like really old film, that seems to keep longer. I have a feeling it's because there were like really horrible things in the film that makes it last, heavy metals and things like that. (laughs) Probably. So what I do is I have kind of a guideline that I set up for myself, and that's high-speed film over a decade old, I take off two stops right away. So if you're shooting 3,600, I would knock that down to 800 right away. So medium film. So that's like 100-ish. 100-ish, yeah. yeah. I do I do the one stop per decade until I get to 12 ISO. And that's four stops, so four decades. And after that, it's either bad or it for some reason kind of it stops aging at that point. I'm not sure why, and maybe I'm wrong. I've had really good luck with medium speed film. Okay. How about slow? Well, the slow stuff is... Awesome. It keeps really, really well. Oh, God, I got this brick of Panatomic X in 35mm. It was from a professional. I knew it was stored well. It was from the mid-90s, I guess, and I knocked one stop off of it, and it shot beautifully. It shot like new. I probably could have shot it at 32, and it would have been just fine. And then there's like really super slow film, like the like microfilm at like six ISO. That doesn't seem to age at all. As far as the photosensitivity goes, it will fog like some of our slow me hour fuzzy burrito stuff. I mean, that's why we called it fuzzy burrito because it had some fogging. Yeah, and it'll fog before it it loses photosensitivity. Let's move on through. Let's do color now. So C41, obviously, we're not yeah. going to even touch on C22. C22, people have done it. Actually, I've seen some really great results with it, but... We're going with the basics today. (laughs) This is kind of based on an emulsion by emulsion, a film by film basis. Like Veracolor from the 90s, I shoot a lot of that. And that holds its own really well. I think it was originally 160, and I shoot it at 50. And it just works. It's just really nice. Now, Mm -hmm. I also develop color in ECM2, and I feel that helps bring the colors out more than C41 for expired film. My experience only, I've noticed that almost everywhere across the board, but you might have different experiences. But then there's film like Konica from like the mid 2000s even, that can be a blotchy mess, especially in 120. I've noticed some pretty, pretty bad. That's so weird. It seems like I just, Eric sent me some film recently and I could swear he sent me like 15 rolls of Konica. You are <laughs> and absolutely I'm like, wait mistaken. a minute. <laughs> You know, maybe mess. No, I have a feeling that Kanaka that I gave you is perfect. <laughs> It'll shoot at box speed wow, or even do above. Do you see, you guys? <laughs> you see this? He's like, here. I'm being nice, guy. Here's all this Kanaka. <laughs> eh, what can I do? <laughs> it's okay. I will go through it, and I'm going to do some trial and error, just like what we're talking about. So yeah, maybe we'll do a Kanaka dev party at some point. Who knows? <laughs> As far as aging goes, you use the you use the decade for the color usually. Kind of, yeah. I do the ten years old one stop, twenty years old two stops, and then I kind of stop with that. I don't usually shoot color film that's older than twenty or maybe thirty years, unless I maybe do a lot of tests with it. It's like so grainy; it's not worth it for me. Mm. I don't like it, but you know, if that's your thing, go for it. That can be great. Now, I have had luck with really old Kodak Gold, and I've had some decent luck with really old Fuji. 
Yeah. Honestly, I just have mixed feelings about shooting Fuji color right now. For some reason, I just <laughs> haven't been loving. I have a bunch of expired film that I'm kind of going through. Sometimes I, I have some great results. I love them. And, and then sometimes not so much. So what about slide film then? Oh, yeah. Slide film, I would say, is probably the hardest. And also limited. Honestly, 2006 and below, yeah. forget about it. But good luck. And I've shot some really good 90s stuff somewhat recently, too, mm-hmm. in toy cameras, because you're you're not going to care as much. And this is the thing. You can't, if you're, if you want really beautiful slide film. Get fresh. Get fresh. Or get, like, recently expired. Don't expect old stuff. I know there was just an article recently on, I'm also about shooting and developing old slide film in E6, and they had some really great luck. And that's wonderful. Good for them. That is not normal. Mm-hmm. You can, we will almost always have bad luck with it. But it could be the bad luck that you like. You could enjoy it. You can enjoy the look. And I do in the toy cameras. I'll take it to like the desert and it'll be like a really kind of a surreal scene and I'll shoot it and I'll cross process it and it'll come back warm and kind of feeling like the place felt. And so I think like expired slide film, there's a really special place for it in my work. It may not be for everybody. Yeah. I mean, I do. I would say the slide film, if it's expired, usually I just cross process it. So as far as time limits go, if it's less than five years, I generally will shoot it at box speed. And if it's kind of five to 10, I'll knock a stop off of it. And 10 to 15, I'll knock two stops off of it. And after 20, it usually goes in the don't bother category, though I will often test it just to make sure. <laughs> and so, I mean, God, there's this is uh, no set of rules here. These are there's tons of exceptions. You know, this is our experiences with it, and these are just guidelines. Let's talk about developing. When it comes to black and white developing, the easiest thing that I do because fogging is is definitely an issue is I develop it in HC one ten. All of my expired black and white is HC-110. Yeah, that just makes sense. It contains a chemical that will help deter fogging. It's kind of helpful. If you don't have HC-110, but you find yourself with more than a handful of rolls of of expired black and white, go get yourself some HC-110. You're going to need it. There's no reason not to. (laughs) It's something you should always have in your arsenal. Um, And if you don't know the HC-110 time, say if you're shooting something like like old-ass Fomapan from, from, I don't know, whenever, and you don't have the HC-110 times, you can use the Ansel method, and that is um, real quickly, it's just what one plus ninety for eighteen minutes. Yes, across yes. the board for any yeah. black and white. Um, Ansel Adams did that all through the eighties, so that makes things very simple. <laughs> so when you're developing and you're looking for the times for HC one ten, or I guess any other developer, I always use the stated times for the box speed. So let me explain that. If you're shooting Kodak Plus X from the eighties and you've decided like, well, I'm going to shoot this at twenty five because of how old it is. Originally, that film was a 125 ISO film. You should still develop that at the regular box speed, 125. Don't push it, don't pull it, just develop it like it's supposed to be developed. Because here, box speed means the true photosensitivity of the film. And in this example, that box speed is now 25 ISO. But you have to develop it at its original box speed, always. And as far as color and E6 goes... Develop is normal. There's nothing much you can really do. Some people can push color, I guess. I've never really done it all that much. There is cold stand that we did on an episode of Dev Party, Vanya tells me. Is that right? We did. (laughs) You don't remember? (laughs) I have no recollection of it now. Yeah, we both got results. Okay, good. So I guess you can do cold stand, but I I don't know if it will give you any better results than 
I mean, maybe if it's old and you want to just do a cold stand so you don't melt the emulsion off, I guess. I don't know. Oh, that would be C22. And so I don't really know. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. In summation. Why bother? Why bother? (laughs) It seems like a pain in the ass. Why, Why do you shoot expired film? Well, because it's accessible and it's usually cheap. I think that's kind of changed now, hasn't it? Well, it it has kind of. I mean, right now I have enough film, like as, as far as expired goes, I have enough film. I think the first experience I had with it was like I found this box of like 60 rolls of Fuji 100 for like 50 <laughs> bucks. And I was wow. like, yeah, sure. Why not? I was like, oh, there are 12 exposures that, that could be cool for just like testing cameras or like, you know, testing different like, in, you know, different tricks or whatever. Sure. Okay, this isn't, you know, a $12 roll of Portra 400. (laughs) I can blow through this and not feel bad if I fuck it up. So that had something to do with it for me. Also, it's just like, why waste? I think like what Nick said, it's just the excitement of an experiment and pulling out negatives and, and seeing like really interesting color shifts is a lot of fun. Everything doesn't have to be just so like strict and black and white. Like you can really um, manipulate things. If you're able to find a roll of film that's 40 years old or 30 years old or 20 years old or whatever, and you're able to shoot with that, that's fucking amazing. I think that's just so cool. Yeah, it really is. I actually have a story. tell you all about it. (laughs) Old shit rules. (laughs) I have some Veracrome film, which has an expiration date of July 1947. And that was the year and month my mother was born. So I have it in my freezer and I have hopes to shoot it in 2047 because why the (laughs) fuck not? That's 27 years from now. I know. I'm going to be so old. (laughs) (laughs) I might be dead. I don't know. Well, I'll shoot it for you if you are. Yeah, yeah. Eric's a hobbit. He's going to live, like, until he's 150. (laughs) (laughs) There's no rules. Fuck it, right? So today we have a very special guest. Her name is Janet. And guess what? Janet built a wet plate. That's right. She did. From start to finish, she built it. And we are going to talk to her about that. Yeah. So let's give Janet a call. Hello. (laughs) Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. Good. Hello. How are are you? you? (laughs) Good. My sound is weird. Okay. How is it weird? You're not weird, but Vanya is. Uh-oh. <laughs> that is true. It, it is. <laughs> in, what, in what way is she Don't weird? Don't take that personally, Vanya. <laughs> no, it sounds like you're underwater. Oh, cool. Huh. <laughs> uh, so where are you located? I'm in Harvard, Illinois. I am North Illinois. I do my grocery shopping in Wisconsin. That's how far north I am. Okay, okay. I'm right on the state line. Oh, so how's your day going? It's great. It's a little crazy because we are running a law office out of our home right now. Oh, okay. And because of the pandemic. So um, my husband has the law office and um, I help him, sort of. I am a musician. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) So you play music in the background. It's perfect. (laughs) What do you play? Um, I studied opera. Really? I, yes, I have a master's in opera from a school in Austria. Oh, oh wow. Wow. <laughs> so, 
Okay, so what is it about you that makes you dive into a project like this one? <laughs> I know, insanity. Um, <laughs> I think I, I love a challenge. I am curious beyond belief. I mean, I just, I want to know how everything works. I'm like kind of annoyingly enthusiastic. Um, so when I jump into something, I really like to jump in, but you know, it's, I, I really grab onto something and I, I don't let it go. So, um, and I like to do things from start to finish. This really tickled my, that tickled everything for me. It was interesting. It was something I could really get into. I'll be able to, to get into this for a long time. You know, it's like never ending. Yeah. So is this kind of the first project like this you've done? Have you had this like curiosity and drive to do these weirdly overwhelming things before? Or is this something new? Um, well, I started uh, studying opera when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, and when I was 10, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I guess I was pretty driven, but like my parents were that way too. And my parents were always like, you know, go try different things and don't sit home. And my parents were depression kids so they had this this great sense of optimism huh Uh, what did you know about wet plate (laughs) photography before this project diddly i knew nothing Uh, i mean uh, honestly (laughs) i i didn't know anything about photography until like three and a half years ago i never picked up a camera ever in my life wow in the space of like five years we lost three parents a handful of dogs and my children moved out of the house. Oh, so wow. it was like, you we went from like six people in my house to just my husband and I. And I was like, I hate you. you know, <laughs> I, I hate being here like alone and it's depressing. So he bought me a camera and I thought, oh, that's so nice. And then he signed me up for a class and that was just too much. I was so mad at him. <laughs> um, I was like, I can't believe you did that to me. And I came home from the first three classes and I was like, I hate this. This is stupid. I was... My computer skills were lacking, you know, and it was just so flipping hard. But I stuck it out for three classes and I was like, oh, my God, this is it. You know, I this is my hobby for the rest of my life. And it just was more and more and more. And I had this phenomenal teacher. So lucky at our local community college. He's at the Yale's master's program and he had a darkroom class. And I took one semester of dark room and he showed me the things like Anna Atkins and cyanotypes and Van Dykes. And it just absolutely, it it spoke to me that, that medium, I just loved it. You could just go out and buy a camera that can shoot wet plates. Even almost any four by five or eight by 10 would be able to do that. Why go this DIY route? Because I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I love that. (laughs) I didn't didn't know what kind of camera to buy or even start looking for. And I started looking for like antique cameras, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like in Sotheby's, you know, like cameras. And I was like, well, it needs to work. And anything that worked was like $5,000. And I was like, yeah, my kids are in college. I do not have this kind of money. And then I started looking at some of the ones on eBay, you Mm -hmm. know, like, but they all needed to be fixed. And I was like, well, I don't want to get a camera that is just going to have problems. You know, I don't know enough. And I thought, well, if I build it, by the time I'm done building it, 
I will have learned the chemistry and other things that I need to know. So as we were building this, I was studying up on it and it all worked out. (laughs) Yeah, the build looks incredible and overwhelming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm very impressed. (laughs) Was this a long-term project? Like how long did it take from the concept design, finding the materials? Like I saw the, um, a couple pictures you have on your Instagram of the bellows and things like, can you maybe talk to us a little bit about those? From start to finish, it was exactly nine months. It was like giving birth. Yeah. By the time this thing was done, I mean, it was like, all the labor pains and everything else that went with this thing. And I swear to God, when I die, I want to be cremated. I'm going to be put in this sucker. You know? <laughs> it's just going to be in the ground with me. <laughs> That's a good idea. I like that. I like it. And the bellows, the bellows for me was the easiest thing to make. Really? They were, they were not a problem. But I sew. Being a musician, and also not only do I do opera, but we also do Irish. So my side gig, I play the harp. And my husband plays the Illin Pipes, and we had this Irish band and stuff like that. But we knew Tina players. So concertina players, I called them, and I was like, what am I going to do with this? And they're like, oh, yeah, we've got, you know, this is where you can get material. And they came up with a great way for me to make the ribs. And this is something I had not seen any place else. My ribs are actually made out of wood. Wow. That's actually, it's veneer. Mm-hmm. So, and the veneer has a glue on the back. You know, it's very, very thin wood that I'm using in there. That's kind of genius. I love it. (laughs) So kind of getting away from the technical ends, most people favor a format or a camera to shoot like specific things. What does wet plate inspire you to shoot? Oh, this was, what is it about the quality of these, of a wet plate? Like, I don't have the art words, you know, I, I have the music words, you know, it's ethereal. It's both soft and sharp at the same time. And it is, I don't know, it, the fact that your image lands on the collodion, that's how I feel. It's like absorbing like yeah. the energy or something. It's spiritual. I mean, it's just, it's transcendent. And I don't know why. So to me, I have to find some very, very, some things that are just so dear to my heart, whatever that is and it's very it's very operatic you know and so mm-hmm. i i tend towards very dramatic things i think the photos that i really like they're, they're, they tend to be kind of drama-ish mm-hmm. um very symbolic a lot of symbology in them so i don't know yet <laughs> um, my family i think for yeah. portraits i definitely want my children on this these are soulful things to me. And I'm like, I'm going to cry right now. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, you got me. <laughs> so we, we saw in your Instagram feed, you came up somehow with a suitcase dark room. Yes. What What is that? And okay, like, so- how'd that come about? <laughs> it's amazing. We love it. But- oh, yeah. thank you. So, so um, I got to a point in my build where I was like, I was stuck. I could not figure out how to get the wet plate carrier onto the back of the camera and have the registration the same as the glass. So I went to see John Coffer in upstate New York. I went to one of his workshops and and my husband came with me and John went up there and he was like, ah, I get it. At the same time, John was able to conceptualize and finish the design for the camera. I was there actually working with the collodion and figuring out, you know, actually hands-on how to do this. So when we came back, 
he finished the camera. And what we had seen up there was this kind of little mobile darkroom that John Coffer had. They had to have something right there at hand. It's like, oh, this is awesome. You know, this makes sense and I can do something like this myself. Then I found Lund Photographics has a, a sort of a suitcase style thing. Again, this was something that was just so out of my price range. And I was like, nah, I, I can just do this on my own. So I kind of, between those two things, I came up with my own design and it's, it works like a charm. I mean, I have no fogging in that thing. I have a window in it with red so that I can use like the daylight as my safe light. I call B&H and they're like, why don't you just get the filter that we use for the big lights? Sure. Send me one of those. It was about 20 bucks. I put that in. I haven't had any problems with it at all. So, hmm. And I use um, uh, Thor Labs. I used two thicknesses of their flight-safe photo material. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so in your, in your bio, you say that you, you're not sure why you're building the wet plate camera. Have you figured that out? <laughs> like, was there oh. a purpose that you kind of realized? I, I guess, yes, I have. I needed opera. I needed opera back in my life and I don't, I don't do the music anymore. And I stopped doing the music. I was kind of shoehorning it in between family and kids and that kind of stuff. And it, it ended, you know I mean? If you don't keep up with it, you lose your context and they Mm. move on, you know, but I really missed it. But it was really hard to think that I wasn't going to have something of that, that substantial. This camera comes straight out of that period. This is this is a connection for me to this is Schubert, this is Beethoven, this is, you know, from Mozart to the end of the to Puccini. And so many opera singers were even on these wet plates. Yeah. You know, I some of the books that I have, you know, now I can go back and say, Oh my gosh, I know that that's an ambrotype, you know, and of this singer or that singer. So it has this huge romantic thing. I needed opera in my life. I needed something that big. What play Clodian is the opera of photography. Would never yeah. have thought of it that way, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's uh, maybe the best way to describe it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um wow. so I I have a question. I was in the water um the other day with a friend who is doing tintypes and he actually follows you and he I was like, Oh, do you have any like questions you want me to ask? And and he did. It was which salts do you use for your Clodian? Okay, so I have my <laughs> recipe here. <laughs> okay, so I'm using cadmium bromide, ammonium bromide, and potassium iodide. That's for my part A, that I'm adding the collodion and the ether into that and the okay. grain alcohol. So, uh, And then I'm adding a little bit of a tincture of iodine at the very end, like two drops of it. And, I, and that's called the old workhorse. Uh, old recipes. Okay. Ah. So, do you think you'll travel with this? Yes, absolutely. Really? I play the harp. I had to buy a separate vehicle for my instrument, so this is not a problem. <laughs> okay. Me, you know, I mean, yeah. And, you know, it's like I'm just kind of used to bringing all kinds of crap with me wherever I go. So. Tell us about your first exposure with this. What was that like? Well, okay, so first of all, I was, like, really nervous, you know. I was, like, how stupid, you know. I mean, I was, like, oh, my gosh, you know, like, I'm going to just screw this up. I, I just didn't really have any problems. So the first one was overexposed. And um, I just approached it like I did do, like, the Van Dykes, you know. Mm-hmm. I was, like, well, I'll just cut it in half. 
And then, you know, so I'm just having or doubling. It's sort of like calculus, you know, yeah. it's always in half or always doubled. I don't know. Within three plates, I had a decent exposure. So, um, wow. but the first one was overexposed. And then I had like this little graveyard of um, alcohol, rubbing alcohol. And um, I just I toss them into their little tin type graveyard to dissolve. Because I feel like they have little souls, you know, so like I have to destroy them. <laughs> I, don't want these, like, I don't want these little like half souls formed like roaming the earth or something. <laughs> wonderful (laughs) love that (laughs) so uh the we have a question that we're going to be asking uh the next episode which will be our halloween episode if you could bring one emulsion back from the dead what would it be dry plate emulsion i guess (laughs) (laughs) i mean i'm kind of working with bringing stuff back from. yeah you kind of already are doing it you're you're just doing it i don't know that much about any other emulsions you know i I wish I could answer that far more intelligently, but I can't. So I, but I do want to try dry plate emulsions. So yeah. I guess that counts. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but I mean, you are you are bringing an emulsion back from not quite from the dead, but you have to make that emulsion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is that it? I think so. I think that's I it. Think so. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. This is such a blast. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> bye. Bye. Last, it seems to be here. For years, we predicted that color photography would finally reach the stage in which it would become practical to all photographers. And now, here comes Eastman Kodak with an announcement that promises to bring joy and pleasure to the hearts of the would-be color photographers. Ektachrome is the name given to the new color film, which comes with real, genuine promise. This new film is a boon to mankind. You have never seen such fidelity in color. The film's brilliance and soft gradation renders such lifelike color as to be almost unbelievable. With Ektachrome, every photographer may process it himself. While this process was employed widely by the armed forces during the war, it was a dangerous process. Now these dangers have been removed, and photographers may use the solutions without fear. It's Ektachrome! And hold on to your hats, boys. You will like the price. It's nearly one half that of Kodachrome. In 2021, Kodak's Ektachrome will celebrate its 75th anniversary. To many of us, shooting and developing slide film has seemed like a nearly impossible enigma. We're told that the exposure must be dead on, that the process is long and complicated. On top of that, the film itself is more expensive than any other color film available. But when Ektachrome was first introduced in 1946, it was pitched as a color film that was forgiving, easy to process, and cheap. So what happened along the way? Most of these early claims can be blamed on Kodachrome, the first color reversal film available from Kodak. Kodachrome was incredibly strict with exposure. Processing could only be done by a Kodak lab, and it was anything but cheap. Kodachrome went for nearly $3 a roll, which when adjusted for inflation, though that also included processing. A decade before Ektachrome was introduced, both Kodachrome and AgfaColor New were available. Using different processes, they provided the photographers with color slides. Both were widely available, though AGFA was much cheaper, as it was likely subsidized by the Nazi government. Both required a lab for processing, and neither caught on, though both were impressive. AGFA completely restructured after the war, focusing more on motion picture film for a decade or so. Kodak, however, targeted the consumer market. During World War II, Kodak explored new ways to make color film. 
Kodachrome had the color couplers. That's the material that produces the color. They had those in the developers, not in the emulsion. The war was spent working on Kodacolor aero reversal film. See, unlike Kodachrome, this emulsion had the couplers built into it and thus could be processed easily on the battlefield. The chemicals, however, were incredibly toxic. But with a few years of trial and error, the really bad stuff was replaced with pretty bad stuff and ectochrome was born. One of the interesting things we discovered while researching this piece was just how prevalent newspaper columns about photography were, especially right after World War II. Generally, they'd run once a week and usually on Sundays. The columnists would talk about camera news and what was new and available. They would sometimes discuss photographers and give advice on exposure. They'd write out detailed processing instructions and talk about local photography events. Honestly, they were a lot like film photography podcasts. (laughs) While much of our information for this piece came from the research of Maurice Fisher and Michael Talbert from photomemorabilia.co.uk, quite a bit of it was scooped from old newspaper columns. In fact, our entire intro was derived, basically, from Charles A. Roth's column in the Hackensack Record, but most every newspaper worth its salt had a photography column. For instance, there was Hal Jair's M. Photog in the Muncie Star Press. Herm Lenz at the San Francisco Examiner. The Open Lens from the Honolulu Advisor. Photography tips from the Mansfield, Ohio News Journal. Camera Click from the Oakland Tribune. What's new in photography from the Fairbanks, Alaska Daily News Miner. The Camera Fan from the Indianapolis Star. The Shutter Clicks from the Bridgeport Post. Camera News from the Charlotte Observer. And really countless more. As we work our way through the history of Ectochrome, these columnists provided us with contemporary reviews and thoughts along the way. It was columnists such as Charles Roth who broke the story of Kodak's big announcement following the 55th Annual Convention of the Photographers Association of America in Chicago. Kodak's announcement of Ectochrome was preceded by the announcement that they had finally figured out a way to make prints using Kodachrome. This was big news to be sure, but nowhere near as huge as Ectochrome. Slated to be released in mid-September, the marketing focused upon processing. According to Roth, who was likely copying a press release, Ectochrome was designed for processing in the studio lab thus giving an opportunity to see the results a short time after taking. Speed was also a huge deal. 90 minutes are required for complete development, said Roth. Describing the ease of the process was Hal Jair in the Muncie, Indiana Star Press. Tanks are recommended for the various processing steps and five tanks will be required. All other equipment is most simple and usually found in every darkroom, requiring only a little over an hour, only about the first third of which must be done in total darkness. This development process is well within the understanding and capacity of anyone who has had darkroom experience in processing black and white. They had me at five tanks, honestly. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Perhaps less exciting was the film itself. When Ectochrome debuted, it was available only in sheets, two and a quarter, three and a quarter, three by four, and four by five. It would take a year or so for it to be released in 120 and 620 rolls. The film itself was cheap when compared to Kodachrome. A box of 12 sheets would run you $7.85. That's over $100 in today's money. When 120 was finally released, it came to $1.10 per roll, or about $16 a roll when adjusted for inflation. So I just want to stop right there for a second. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's not because cheap. Because we complain about film prices 
a lot. And, you know, yeah. it, it is. It's much more expensive than the prices that we're paying. You know, 12 sheets for, for $100, essentially. That's like eight bucks a sheet. That's about double of what Ektachrome sheets are going for now. And with that, the price for Ektachrome, that didn't cover processing, which was almost the same amount as the film, unless you processes it yourself. And so you would be spending $100 for the box of film and $100 again to process it. According to the Daily Oklahoman, Ektachrome was quick. The new film requires only 90 minutes for the complete processing, and only the first step, 19 minutes, must be handled in total darkness. <laughs> so we are going to talk a little bit about the processing. Yeah, let's, let's go uh, step by step through the okay. first. Well, it has 15 steps over 90 minutes. I think we figured out it's what, 94, 93 minutes, something like that? Yeah, about yes. that. Yes, this is the length of a, of a movie. The interesting thing is I'm, I'm looking at a chart that we have for the segment. So we start with the first developer, and this is a lot like E6, honestly. A lot of us are familiar with that. So yes. this has a first developer similar to that. Yeah, and the temp is about 68 degrees, so that's reasonable. And the rest of, of the steps, they're saying about 65 to 70 degrees degrees. Yeah, they each have different tolerances, but it's roughly in there. If you kept everything at 68, you'd be good. Yes. Yeah. And the first developer time is 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And then they have you rinse for a minute between... Yes, and then you add the hardener. And what the hardener does is it hardens the emulsion. Otherwise, it would get all gooey. And that is five to ten minutes. I'm honestly not sure, like, how you judge. But <laughs> the cool thing there is the lights can be turned on after three. So after that, you can do this in complete light. So reversal exposure is the next step. So you're basically exposing each side for five seconds with a some sort of flood lamp. And that is you would just take the sheet, because there are still sheets, Hold one side up to the lamp for five seconds, flip it, hold the other side up to the lamp for five seconds, and then you would wash it after that. For five minutes. One of the things we didn't mention was agitation. And with each of these steps, you agitate it just like regular film. But since these were sheets, their instructions are, while it is in the solutions, agitate the film once every two minutes by lifting it entirely out of the solution and draining it for five minutes from one corner. Drain the film alternately from each of the bottom corners. So pick it out. Let it drip, put it back in. That was their agitation. And of course, you'll be doing that in the dark for the first developer and doing it in the light for everything after the hardener. Okay, so after washing is step number six, which is color developer. Yes, and this was 25 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) A simple 25 (laughs) minutes. Of standing there, taking it out of the solution, letting it drip, and then putting it back in once every minute. And then another five minutes of wash. Mm-hmm. And then you clear. Then clearing, they use a, I think they use a solution. They call it a clearing and fixing solution. And so step eight is clearing. The fixing is coming later, but you clear for five minutes. Rinse again. And then the tenth step is bleaching for ten minutes. Rinse again for another minute. And then you fix using the same clearing and fixing bath. So similarly, yeah. like how we have a Blix. Yeah. I think this is instead of the bleach and fix together, this is the clearing and fix together. But they couldn't come up with a cool term like clicks <laughs> for some reason. So you clicks for five minutes. And then uh, guess what, you guys? Another wash for, ooh, 10 minutes this time. Minutes. And then the 14th step is remove water droplets using PhotoFlow and you wipe it down, basically squeegeeing. And the 15th step is drying. 
Yeah, and that's it. That's your very convoluted, very long process. It was considered quick. This was the first color that you could really do in your home. And it mm-hmm. took a long time and wasn't easy, but to them, it was easy and quick because they were used to just nothing but this. It must have been pretty amazing to be able to make color images. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's still amazing. When I pull color images out, I'm like, woo, so excited. <laughs> I do that. <laughs> woo. One of the things you have to know when you're doing this is that once you mix the chemicals, you do not have a long time to use oh, them. Oh, yeah. The first one was not very good no. as far as keeping your chemicals. Okay. Now, it says, for best results, processing solutions should be mixed immediately before use. That's still true. You should still do that. If necessary, however, unused solutions can be kept for two weeks in full, tightly stoppered bottles. Partially used solutions should not be stored for more than one week or inferior results will be obtained. So (laughs) you've got a week to use this. I think the great thing is that these chemical kits, they came in half, one, and three and a half gallons of solution. (laughs) Yeah. Now labs would be the ones using the three and a half gallons. But really, you still had to you know, save up your film. Now, one of the nice things about the early ectochrome film is unlike now, it does last a little longer once it's exposed. Mm -hmm. So moving on. The Daily Oklahoman continues. Several films can be processed together. In fact, as soon as one lot is out of the darkroom stage, another lot can be started, thus greatly reducing processing time for a number of films. All of that was great, but the color stability was only about eight years. That means many of the photos taken with early ectochrome are lost forever. On the other hand, Kodachrome was slated to last 200 years. So in late 1954, immediately before announcing the new faster ectochrome, Kodak lost an antitrust case due to their monopoly over developing formulas. See, with their Kodachrome and Kodacolor film, the cost of processing was included in the price of each roll. This ruling allowed independent labs to finally process both emulsions themselves. This wasn't the case with ectochrome, which Kodak had always allowed to be processed by anyone. Maybe it was a test to see how the business model would work. While photographers were excited about the news, conservatives blamed the socialists because, of course they did. A month later, in January of 1955, Kodak introduced a new and updated ectochrome. Both the emulsion and the developer were improved. However, at first, it was only available in 35mm and 828. The film was rated at 32 ISO, which was three times faster than the old ectochrome. There was some debate about how ectochrome in 35 would do when compared to Kodachrome in the same format. Here's what Les Sipes of the Oakland Tribune camera click had to say about that. In the past... Kodachrome in 35mm has been preferred by some workers over the then larger ectochrome sizes for its sharper definition and more brilliant poster-like colors. Just how much definition the ectochrome will have in the 35mm size when stacked up against Kodachrome remains to be seen. However, its greatly increased speed may be a greater advantage to be traded for any minor differences in this respect. The 35mm rolls sold for around $1.85 a piece, which would be nearly $18 in 2020. When it came to processing it, Kodak was very clear. While the new process was substantially the same as the old process, the old process wouldn't work with the new film. But since medium and large formats film still needed to be processed in the old formula, they named the old process E1 and the new E2. E2 processing was nearly identical to E1, but the first developer was changed, and later the bleach was updated somehow. Times were shortened, temps were raised to 75 degrees Fahrenheit, and finally a stabilizer became the final step 
even after washing. Kodak also offered kits for processing the new E2. The one-pint version, enough to develop a few sheets at a time, sold for $1.80. Again, roughly $18 in today's money. The kits would keep for two to three months. While the E2 was an improvement over E1 in terms of color, before the decade was out, Kodak released Improve Process E2 and the Improve film to go along with it. This quickly gave way to the E3 process, which was identical to improved process E2 in every way except the first developer, which contained a different developing agent now. The new film gave improved definition, better yellows and greens, and whiter whites. At this point, the chemical processes were coming quickly. Three new processes in four years. So the photography columnist focused upon the film. The Honolulu Advertiser's Monty Itu wrote, The most notable advance in color photography within the past year was breaking of the speed barrier by Eastman Kodak with the introduction of the high-speed ectochrome. This new emulsion had a warp speed rating of 160 ISO. Regular ectochrome was still at 32, but medium format could pull off 50 ISO. This is wonderful film, said Itu. For those who prefer super slides to 35mm slides because of its finer grain, higher resolving power, and color fidelity. One color processor in Honolulu says it is the closest thing to Kodachrome. The interesting thing about high-speed ectochrome is that it could also be processed in either of the previous E2 iterations. Kodak also insisted that it could be cross-processed in C22, Cold Developer, the predecessor of C41. In the early 60s, ectochrome could be picked up for $2 a roll, now roughly the same price as Kodachrome, about $17 in today's money. This was twice as much as Kodacolor negative film. Meanwhile, Veracrome Pan, their black and white offering, could still be had for less than 50 cents a roll, or around $4 when adjusted for inflation. It took a whopping five years for Kodak to introduce the E4 process. This new formula for 1965 was drastically changed from E3. It took a whopping five years for Kodak to introduce the E4 process. This new formula for 1965 was drastically changed from E3. With the new process came new film, Ectochrome's X, MS, and ER, as well as an infrared film and higher speed sheets. However, this left a lot of films still on the shelves that couldn't be developed by the new E4 chemicals. According to Monte E2, by the end of 1965, Kodak's lab in Honolulu stopped processing E3 and E2. E2 wrote, This process does not yield the best results when used with professional ectochrome roll film. So this service has been discontinued. For the DIY hobbyists, this wasn't a huge issue. E3 and even E2 kits were still available for around $16, which is still over 130 in today's money. That said, the developers, once mixed, would last less than two weeks. Fortunately, Kodak sold the developers separately as the bleach and fixers would last as long as 12 weeks. All this essentially seemed to do was make photographers stick with E3. There were some pretty striking differences between the old E3 and the new E4 processes. For starters, the temperatures were raised 10 degrees to 85 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's 29.5 Celsius. This was also the first ectochrome process that did not require the film to be re-exposed to light. The same effect was rendered by a chemical fogging agent. The times were also reduced. E2 and E3 both took over an hour to process. E4 cut off nearly 15 minutes. Woohoo! <laughs> All of this rendered E4 film color stable for 30 years, an improvement of two decades over the early ectochrome. While Kodak was getting their various e-processes sorted out, they were also using ectochrome as motion picture film. We'll not venture too deeply into this territory, except to say that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was shot on the 16mm version of ectochrome. 
The motion picture emulsions were developed with a process very similar to E3 and E4, called either ME3 and ME4. But before Kodak helped Leatherface put a chainsaw through poor Franklin, Come on, Franklin! It's gonna be a fun trip! They teamed up with NASA's moon program. Kodak had worked with NASA since its inception in 1958, and before that, with the National Advisory Committee of Aeronautics. By the time of the moon landing in July of 1969, Kodak was comfortable in their E4 process. The emulsions they were selling to the public received good reviews. They were so confident in the process that they decided to use it for the Apollo program. However, Kodak didn't select any old ectochrome film for this mission. They chose a motion picture stock. They chose a motion picture stock, specifically for you camera nerds. It was ectochrome EF7241 SO-168. 160 ISO. And ectochrome MS7256 SO-368. 64 ISO. The latter stock, the 64 ISO, was used on the Earthrise photo the year prior. Along with a newly formulated Panatomic X recording film, Kodak provided the emulsions in 16mm for motion picture cameras, 35mm for a newly created stereo camera, and 70mm for the Hasselblads, which we talked about on our very first episode. For Apollo 11, the astronauts were given three rolls of 70mm ectochrome for the Hasselblads, each 140 feet long, enough for 480 shots. NASA would continue to use these same emulsions through Apollo 17, the last manned moon landing in 1972. One of the larger questions by photographers at the time was, how could the astronauts shoot film on the moon without it melting? This question was answered in July of 1969 by Arthur Juntoon of the Detroit Free Press in his Photography in Focus column. The secret of the Moonwalker's photo success, and the fact that the film didn't melt, lies in the special tough ester emulsion base used in the thin film loaded in the Hasselblad and the Kodak close-up stereo cameras. The mercury ranged from 250 above in the sun to 250 below in the shade, but the astronauts went on coolly snapping. He continued explaining that The only protection the film had from temperatures was from the camera casing and the special cassettes, but no special insulation against the heat or the cold. At the time, most consumer film was still produced with an acetate base, but for the extreme conditions of the moon, Estar, Codex term for polyester was used. Typically, these emulsions were offered in 16mm format. For their use in the Hauselblad magazines, Kodak produced them in the 70mm version. You can still find 70mm magazines for Hauselblads, as well as Mamiya's. You can also find reels on which to develop it, if you like. Speaking of developing, both of the ectochrome emulsions could be developed in ME4, the motion picture version of E4. In 1976, Kodak announced still another ectochrome process, one that is still with us today, E6. Wait a minute. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm pretty sure we're missing something here. What happened to E5? They didn't make one? They did, sort of? It was sort of a laboratory dead end. I guess they tried to do some stuff, and then it failed. They just moved on, and we're just like, all right, 5 was a bust. So E6 was a complete revision. The new film could not be processed in any of the earlier E's. On top of that, the new developer could only be used for E6 film. The following year would see the release of the E6 home developing kit. In their ads, Kodak claimed that the results would be better when compared to Ektachrome X film. Color rendition and sharpness have been improved while the grain structure of this new film remains similar to the film it replaces. The fine print, as reported by Tony Spina in the photo quiz column of the Shreveport Times, explained that The new ectochrome must be processed within 24 hours of shooting. However, Tony was sure that After exposure, the film will hold its quality for several days, or more, if it's kept at body temperature. Mm, Tony was wrong. Tony was very wrong. <laughs> 
Kodak recommended that the new ectochrome be kept in a refrigerator and should be allowed to warm up to room temperature before opening the package to avoid moisture condensation on the surfaces. This was a problem that Kodak decided the consumer could live with in lieu of higher quality. And as far as the E6 process went, Kodak boasted that it cut developing times in half to a cool 32 and a half minutes. But that's something that we won't get into now. We've actually got an E6 dev party scheduled for next week. You can hear us scramble through that. (laughs) I'm sure it'll be fine. Kodak scrapped the Ektachrome line in 2013, only to attempt to bring it back in 2017 and to actually bring it back in 2018. Since then, they've released a single emulsion in 35, 120, and 8mm motion picture film. So Ektachrome is still here with us, and probably will be for a while. We've both shot it. We both really enjoy a lot of it. We've done a lot of expired shots with it. And it's just a really fun emulsion that we kind of wanted to look into. And we're really glad we did. We discovered quite a lot of interesting and fun things along the way. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, I think we did. Have you shot any of the fresh? Well, yeah, I think I have. I have kind of an issue with Kodak's new emulsions, or at least their new films, is that they are very glossy on both sides. And so laying it flat on the scanner bed... No matter which way you put it, just gives you Newton rings. Oh, yeah, you're yeah. right. Sort of sucks. Do you have trays? I do, but I hate them more than Newton I rings. I know, I hate trays too. <laughs> trays, worse than Newton rings. And I guess that's it. We hope you've enjoyed our stroll through the history of that. So in this part of the show, we usually do zine reviews, but unfortunately, we have no zines to review. (laughs) Oh, it's been, I I thought with COVID, everybody would be doing zines, and maybe they are, and they're just not sending them to us. But we would love to see your zines. We'd love to review them and Mm. hopefully get more people to buy them from you. I've still got a lot of zines left of my own, and I'm more than willing to trade like for like. So hit me up if you have a zine and you would like it to be reviewed on the podcast. But until then... We've got an idea for a, not a project, I guess, but a little sharing. Yeah, I think this one's good. I like this. Yeah, and since Halloween's coming up and our next episode is technically our Halloween episode, we would like for you, the listeners, to send us photos of you as kids dressed up in Halloween costumes if these photos were shot on film. Yes, of course. And they probably were. Um, I actually sent you one right now. Take a look. Did you really? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's see here. Wait a minute. Are you the the bee from yeah. from the Blind Melon video? <laughs> oh my gosh. I think you are. Who is the really unhappy mouse? <laughs> That's my older sister, Karina. I know. Oh, I think she was Karina. not happy about being the mouse. <laughs> she was absolutely not happy about being the mouse. Though the uh vampire? Yes. Well, he's, um, we're going to post this, right? Of course. Okay. He's, he's having a very unique moment. Let's just put it yeah, that way. Yeah, he is. He's getting into his character. I like it. I guess that's what's happening. Yes. Yeah, that's my aunt, Jimena, right there. Was oh, that Jimena? Um, okay. I, I'm assuming a lumberjack or something. With a cat. Or lum- lumberjane. <laughs> lumberjane. A lumberjane. So, yes, if you could do that, send those in. Just either email or Instagram or whatever. Get in touch with us somehow. And send us over your Halloween pictures from when you were kids. (laughs) 
Do you guys remember we asked a trivia question? Well, we got the answer for you. Let me refresh your memory. In the spring of 1947, Kodak wanted to test the limits of their new emulsion known as ectochrome. They did this by sending it on a northern expedition. Where did they send it and who was the photographer? Okay, so the answer is right here in this little envelope. So let me quickly extricate it from its paper prison. Okay, and oh, if you get this answer right, you can reward yourself with one single pat on the back, which you have to administer yourself, which isn't much, but is better than a slap on the belly with a wet trout. Okay, so the answer is Bradford Washburn. The Kodak Ectochrome accompanied Bradford Washburn to the summit of Mount Denali, known then as Mount McKinley. According to reports at the time, Washburn will conduct the experiments for Kodak Research Laboratories on sheet ectochrome and Kodakolor arrow in order to throw light on the film's behavior under unusual field conditions in the Arctic. During the trip, Washburn's wife, Barbara, became the first woman to summit Denali. What came of the film testing seems to be lost to history. A few newspapers reported on the Kodak connection prior to the trip, but none of these mentioned the results. And as many of you know, we have a Patreon now. And so that is at uh, patreon.com slash all through a lens. And there are different tiers. And you can check that out there. You get bonus episodes and a lot of bonus content. And you get the episodes early as well. Since our last episode, which hasn't been very long since we are recording early, there are four new patrons. We've- <gasps> Yay! Yay! It's amazing. It's really wonderful. Thank you all so, so much for supporting us. And so our four new patrons are Jesse, Bob DeHoff, Leland Buck, and Michael. Thank you guys all so much for helping us out. We we really do appreciate it. It's kind of amazing that that's happening. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so for each episode, we're featuring one of our patrons. And today we are going to be featuring Jamie Maldonado, Jamie M. Photo on Instagram. Yeah, we're both really familiar with his work. And actually, he has a zine that just is, I think he's in a, in a pre-sale right now with his zine. And uh-huh. I picked it up. It's on its way whenever it's on its way. And I'm really excited about it. His photography is, is really different from what I normally would shoot. I mean, obviously, what I normally would shoot. We were talking about this the other day, about how he kind of is different than a lot of male photographers who almost exclusively shoot female models. Yep. He doesn't really succumb to that male gaze. No, he doesn't. Very much like an equal exchange. Yeah, it, it, it seems so to me. We, yeah, we were literally just talking about this the other day because you were asking me <laughs> of someone who doesn't have that. And yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, Jamie, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's great. I'm actually pre-ordering right now. So, yeah, it's $13. He has a link tree connected to his Instagram. So that's really neat. Um, he's doing some gorgeous color portraits. Yeah, And I believe he's used ECN2 for some of it. Or at least he's he's bought some ECN2. I know he's used it. And I'm, I'm hoping he likes it. Yeah. I mean, even his, like, I'm not really a big fan of, like, Lomo, but he's just nailing it. Yeah, he's good at what he does. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's a really good portrait photographer. He is. And if you're not following him, follow him. Well, so, thanks a lot, Jamie. Yeah, we really you. appreciate it. And we can't wait for the zine to get here. So hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's about all the podcasts we got for you today. And don't forget the spooky question for the next spooky episode of All Through a Lens. And that is, if you could bring one emulsion back from the dead, what would it be? <laughs> 
If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at Gmail. And we're at allthroughalens on Twitter. Vanya is at surfmartian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag allthroughalenspodcast, to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode, so check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search All Through a Lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify, as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, wherever the hell that is, and wherever else you can find your podcasts. Subscribe and leave a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so much for listening. We love you. See you in a couple of weeks. Oh, uh, Vanya? Uh, yeah? Uh, you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. No, do like a, like a meh or something. Meh. 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 I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. I saw a turtle yesterday. <laughs> I saw a fucking turtle. A real turtle in the water. He poked his little head out and was like, what's up? <laughs> Goat. <laughs>